Hello, welcome to SquarePix Podcast. This is Arash Zaghi. In today's episode, I'm going to talk to Jessica Stasek. Jessica is an amazing person. She's a PhD student in astrophysics at Vanderbilt University. She's the program manager of First Center for Autism and Innovation at Vanderbilt University, and she has a podcast of her own. We have talked about a lot of topics, and I hope you find them interesting. Give it a listen. Thank you very much, Jessica, for agreeing to be a guest on this podcast. I really appreciate that when I reached out to you and asked you to help me to disseminate the podcast and uh, inform other people about that. And I asked you to let me know if you know someone in grad school who has autism and is willing to be a guest. And you say, oh, I, I want to be a guest. I can be a guest. Said, oh, amazing. So... I'm, I'm very happy that we are doing this. So I, I will let you to introduce yourself. I'm sure I'm not going to do justice. And please go ahead. Okay, sure. So I'm Jessica Shonnet Stasek. I am a graduate student of astrophysics at Vanderbilt University. And I'm also the project coordinator for the Frist Center for Autism and Innovation, which is housed in the School of Engineering at Vanderbilt University. I am also my own podcast host and a bunch of other hats that I wear. But my two main my two main jobs are PhD candidate and project coordinator. And I hope we get to talk about all of those a little bit. Uh, before we start recording, we got to chat a little bit and I, I'm really impressed by the breadth of the work that you're doing. I, I'm very curious to know about your PhD work. I've always been amazed with astronomy so I want to know more what your research is. Absolutely I could talk about astronomy all day until the cows come home but let's I'll, I'll tell you specifically about what I work on because mm-hmm. um, it is a very broad obviously so what I do falls under the subtopic of galactic archaeology so there's an argument here that it should be called galactic paleontology but uh, we'll call it galactic archaeology for now so Essentially, what we do is we use the stars as a fossil record, much like an archaeologist would use fossils as a fossil, well, a paleontologist would use fossils as a mm-hmm. fossil record to determine evolution and formation within the Milky Way. So how did our Milky Way form? What did, what did those different aspects of evolution look like? Were stars accreted from other galaxies when we had galaxy mergers? And, you know, the kind of be all and end all question there is, you know, how did we get here? Like what? what brought us to this galaxy at this time. I work mostly with what we call red giant stars. So these Mm. are stars that are older than our sun and have stopped burning hydrogen in their cores. So they start to evolve and kind of balloon out. Their radius greatly expands and they end up in a part of the kind of space, the, the graphical space that we call the HR diagram. They end up in a place called the red giant branch. And they're very good in terms of a fossil record. So we use lots of different measures in galactic archaeology. We use a measure called astroseismology, which is where we listen to the pulsations of a star, the intrinsic oscillations that a star has. And those that can give us things like the age of the star and the mass of the star. And then we use a measure called spectroscopy, which is how I describe it is kind of smelling the star. And that's mm. how you work out what elements the star's made of. And then finally, we use a measurement called uh, astrometry, 
which is the exact position and movement of the stars. So from that, we can get what we call their kinematics and their orbital parameters. So where they came from, how they're orbiting around the central supermassive black hole, whereabouts in the galaxy they are. And with all this information together, we can we can talk about how the galaxy formed and evolved. That's the quick answer. Awesome. So for <laughs> me to le uh, feel less anxious, I have a question. <laughs> in four billion years, when our sun is going to turn into a red giant, mm -hmm. is it going to encapsulate Earth or not? <laughs> yes, it will. But but I, I feel like this could go one of two ways. I feel either we will have already done ourselves in and it won't matter, or <laughs> we will have all come together in a peaceful society and been able to move to a more hospitable planet because we will have mm. put our money and our energy where it needs to be. So th those are the options, guys, as I see it. <laughs> so we can, we can probably wait a couple of billion years to decide. So we have time, right? Uh, I, I feel like there are more present dangers in space. You know, we have asteroids, which are a, yeah. an issue. Um, and we do, well, not me, but people I know and people who work at NASA do near-Earth orbital analysis and things like that to work out if there's if there's an immediate risk. There's risks from solar flares. So the, the big mm. energy that comes off the sun, in theory, could be bigger, although there's no proof that that could happen on our sun. And if one came directly at us, that could be a big issue for communications, asteroids yeah. in space, uh, sorry, asteroids, astronauts in space, you know, military stuff, airplanes, things like that. So I think there's bigger issues. If, we, if we're worried about space, there are more immediate concerns. Yes. Um, <laughs> and then obviously then climate change, which we are doing to sun. ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's amazing. I've always been amazed by what you guys are doing. I mean, I, I think you're just having fun every day. I don't think yeah. I, I don't ever consider it as like, oh, it's a degree or studying or writing a dissertation. I, I know when you are in it, it it has its own anxieties and all of those things. But oh, it's so fun. Though. Me, I love it. It is, it is. I'm happy to hear that. Good. So uh, Jessica, typically for our listeners to know you better, how you end up here, we start chronologically, we start from your primary school even. And okay. Then we move to the, the current time. And I, I want you, when you're telling us about your experiences, again, like sometimes it's difficult to re remember things accurately, but if you can think of both challenges and yet at the same time, those unique strengths that you were aware of when you were in primary school, let's start from primary school, related to autism, if you can start by that. Sure. So I only just came into my neurodiversity at 29. I'm 32 mm -hmm. now to age myself. So as a child, I didn't know I was autistic, but I was always aware that I was odd. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And uh, But in the, I grew up in the 90s, and there was this kind of prevailing opinion at the time that girls don't get autism. So mm. I think that was, uh, there were quirks, there were weirdnesses, and there were kind of idiosyncrasies in my behaviors, but I don't think they were ever attributed to learning deficits, especially because I excelled in academia. Mm -hmm. So in primary school, there's not really much to say. The main memory I have from primary school that was really affected me wasn't actually primary school it was when my dad passed away so he passed away when I was nine hmm. and that was really like a, a key moment in my life and that's what a lot of my young life was defined as before that hmm. you know it was me my mum, and my dad I'm an only child and I had a very happy very normal childhood because 
I was, you know, fortunate. I grew up in England and I came from a, you know, fairly well-off upbringing. So I never really, I don't, ha- I didn't have any of those kinds of struggles. So after primary school, I went to high school <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, or secondary school, as we call it in the secondary. UK. And again, that was, you know, fairly uneventful in terms of my academics. I always did really well. Uh, I was I was definitely like a chatty kid and I would always get mm-hmm. called up for being too talkative or too distracted. And, and those are things that, yes, I could probably point now to being either autistic or ADHD traits. I would I'd probably mm-hmm. classify myself as ADHD, you know, having some of both of those traits. But I also think for the most part, I was understimulated. I just didn't, you know, the, the typical kind of smart kid not being pushed kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm not I'm not here saying that I was an incredibly smart kid. I was definitely not the top of my class or anything, but I also didn't really feel the drive to to um, apply myself. And I didn't have incredibly good teachers, especially not in science. I detested science. Mm-hmm. I really didn't get on well with my teachers. So, tell, tell more about that. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I just it was boring. I didn't I liked the ideas around science. I was very into like watching documentaries and like I loved astronomy and and kind of the I I always really liked the science that I would have to that I would be able to do if I got through the science of school and college, you know? Mm. Like the very the the basics that you have to learn to get on to doing the stuff that I'm very fortunate to get to do now were just so boring to me that I didn't want to apply myself to them. So I didn't actually go into science. I, I went into music. Hmm. When I, in, in England, you graduate high school at 16 and you go to what we call college, which is a two-year program, which is either within your school or outside. I went to an outside college where you essentially kind of try, try your hand at different things. We do this program, it's called your A-levels. So I guess it's kind of like a GED or similar here, mm-hmm. where you pick a certain number of subjects and you and you try them. And I actually really like that process because I think it, and then you go and specialize when you go to university at 18. And I think that's nice because it's kind of this stopgap between school and university that kind of prepares you. So mm-hmm. that was when I started really falling in love with music. And I found music very much as an escape. And again, you know, looking back on it, I see it now that I have a lot of sensory issues. I had a lot of issues with just like communication and I was always very social, but like I never really felt like I fit in and music was a real escape. So I, I know that there are a lot of listeners that they may have challenges. They may not really associated with autism or any other type of neurodiversity. For that reason, I want to ask you to think about a few very clear examples mm-hmm. and very subjective experiences. The more subjective it is, the better, actually, because sure. then people relate to your experiences, our listeners. So if you can think about a few of those and those moments, if you can tell us some stories about like that instances that you felt awkward or uh, or you, you lost your faith in if there was any moment like that or any relationship with friends with teachers at school your performance if you can give us some specific yeah i can definitely speak to it academically there's one story i remember that uh, thinking back on it now i i i I can i can definitely relate it to my my neurodiversity when i went to college one of the like i said you kind of try your hand at a lot of things and i decided to do law And so you would do these two years worth of law courses, essentially, and it would prepare you in theory to go to law school. And in my first year, I got like a C. 
it wasn't good. And I remember the instructor saying to me, you know, you're a really good problem solver. You're very good at, I am very good at problem solving. I'm very good at kind of seeing a task and knowing the correct way to answer it, as in mm. I'm good at taking exams is the quick way to say this. And, but I just couldn't, I wasn't applying myself because I was distracted. I was not interested necessarily. I didn't feel pushed or stimulated. But I remember that teacher saying to one of my friends, not actually saying to me, Jess is very smart, but she's very lazy. And that really rubbed me the wrong way because I wasn't lazy. It wasn't that I wasn't working. It's that I just wasn't like inspired. And I really need to feel inspired in order to do good work. I need to feel like valued and inspired in some way. And so the next year, I got the option to retake some of these exams that I had kind of not really cared about. Mm-hmm. And I decided to apply myself and I got the top score in like all of my class. Mm. And I remember the teacher actually wrote me a card, like a, you know, like a greetings card. And I think it's still, I still have it somewhere. And it said in it, this is the like you, I can't remember exactly what it said, but she essentially said, this is the most surprising turnaround I've ever seen. Mm. And I realized now it was all because she had told my friend she thought I was lazy. And I was so angry by that because I wasn't, I really wasn't a lazy kid. Mm-hmm. I just wasn't stimulated. And that, you know, probably speaks a little bit to neurodiversity, but probably does have roots in other things as well, you know, because at the time I was misdiagnosed as depressed anxi- anxiety, depression, anxiety. Mm-hmm. And in England, as much as it is here, but maybe even a little bit more, mental health is not approached in the way it should be. And it's very much like we don't talk about our emotions. We don't discuss our feelings, which might be a British trait now that I think about it. Why do you think it is universal? Um, it, it puzzles me. Because I see it. I live, I've lived in America for 10 years now and I do see it here as well. Yeah. So when I say universal, I'm obviously saying England and the UK, uh, England and the and, UK, uh, the UK uh, and the US. I can but, tell you coming from Iran, it's the same thing. Uh, okay. So yes, in Iran as well, I guess. But, uh, you know, we don't, <sighs> mental health is a stigma, Right. It still is, unfortunately, despite the fact we have made these great strides. And although I see it a lot less in the US, like people are a lot more willing to talk about their feelings and talk about how they're, you know, the struggles they're having. And I think that's a, the difference between the US and the UK, at least, is a cultural thing, which is funny because when you emigrate from one very English speaking country to another, you don't really think there's going to be that many cultural differences. But that was one that I did notice is that people were a lot more open here to be like, so what's going on with you? How do you feel? And that probably just speaks to the culture of British being very stiff upper lip and, you know, getting on with things. And that's something that British seem to pride themselves in. I think it's different now than when I was growing up. And it definitely is different for me than it was in like my mum's time. But that's probably why I avoided my mental health for a long time. Mm -hmm. And didn't even start to think about neurodiversity. I didn't hear the word neurodiversity until I moved to the US. Um, Interesting. Yeah. When you, as a student, I, I want to get a better picture. Sure. As a student, when you feel depressed, in US, I kind of know what different approaches families may take toward that. But in UK, is there the, just like, take it in, go on with it, you're going to get better. Is that? Yeah, you got it. Yeah, it's 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 not. And, and I would never say that my mom didn't because really was just me and my mom growing up, you know, and I would never say that she didn't care. She cared. So, she loved me deeply. She still I say loved. She loves me deeply. She's still around. Yes. 
but I don't think, I think it was partly, you know, she was maybe concerned that, you know, if I let myself fall into it too much or I let myself get too identify with my depression too much that it would suck me in. And so she would say things like, oh, you'll be fine or, oh, don't worry about it or, oh, just be happy. Those common things we hear, you know, like when someone says, oh, I find it hard to get out of bed, people are like, well, have you just tried getting out of bed? <laughs> which is, you know, which is the most ridiculous thing because you would never say to someone with a broken leg, oh, maybe you should just fix your leg, <laughs> you know, yeah. like... Uh, so, and, and it was that kind of approach and that was not specific to my mom. Of course, that was just, I think that's just how the culture is there. There's a, a, you know, there is, in some ways it served me specifically in my neurodiversity, I think, because I learned very young how to socially mask, which is for women often, and I think this is probably why women find it harder to get diagnosed for women is something that we are taught very, very young oh, you have to make eye contact, you have to hug mm -hmm. your auntie, you had those things. I didn't want to do any of those things, but it was not appropriate to not do those things. Like, oh, you need to socialize with your family, you need to have small talk, things like that that I didn't want to do or didn't understand why we had to do. And I think that's, it's often, I wouldn't, I'm not going to say that anyone's experience with neurodiversity is easy, but I would say it's relatively easier for boys because if a boy is in the corner playing with trains, oh, they're quirky. You know, but if a girl is doing that, it's it's inappropriate, it's impolite. So I learned to socially mask very early. And although that was hard and I'm having to unlearn a lot of that stuff now, it definitely has served me in that I can now turn that on when I need to. Mm. You know, it helps me in certain situations in which I, you know, networking situations, situations at work where I have to come across as neurotypical because it benefits me if I do. So this masking, actually, this is very interesting. It's, I think it's like the third or fourth time is coming up. Uh, and actually, we have a, a paper under review. Hopefully, it's going to be out soon. We did a qualitative study amongst STEM graduate students. And this was one of the strongest uh, themes, masking mm. as neurotypical. Yeah. And it might be confusing for some that they believe that p we can take care of our ADHD or autism, that, oh, if you can do it, then do it. What they may not notice is that the amount of energy and bandwidth that is occupied yeah. by trying to mask something is going to consume us during the day. So it's going to make mm -hmm. us three times more tired. It's not, it's not going to let us be creative because, again, like all the time you have to hold something in front of you. And so, yeah, we might be able to do it, but it's essentially asking us to operate in a mood that's not natural to us. So it's going to be very energy consuming and yeah. distracting at points. Absolutely. I definitely think that, I mean, to, to give a, a real life example, when I learned about masking and when I realized that what I was doing was masking and I and I started to think about that and started to put in parameters in my life that prevented me having to do it as much. I, my depression in, improved dramatically. My anxiety improved dramatically. Just doing small things like only scheduling a certain amount of meetings a day, working from home, which I do anyway, was a real benefit to me. And, and also being able to start to learn how to let my guard down around people who I trust. You know, mm -hmm. my close friends, my husband, 
I don't have to mask as much as I used to around them. And but so much of it is innate to me now that I I know I'm doing it, but I can't stop it, if that makes sense. But you're right, it's incredibly draining in a way that you just don't realize until you understand what you're doing, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think or it is you more pre- I def- yeah. how it feels without it. Yeah, absolutely. Then- yes, absolutely. I remember when I first started coming into this, going for dinner with one of my closest friends, Alexis, and she was working a night shift at one of the telescopes at the time. So we just, she was, it was before she started the, the night shift and we got a pizza. So there wasn't anyone around. We were just sitting outside the telescope building and I was talking to her about it. And she said, well, you don't have to do any of that around me. And I was like, oh, okay. And she's like, just try stopping. And so I kind of just let my body do what it wanted to do, which was look away from her off into the distance, stare at the ceiling, kind of sit in maybe awkward or weird and not non-appropriate positions, like with my leg on the table or whatever, you know, be able to move my hands and, and things like I wouldn't usually do. And our conversation kept flowing and it became so much more natural for me. And I really could concentrate on what she was telling me because I wasn't thinking so hard about listening. It helped me to listen in a way that I hadn't been able to before because my brain wasn't saying, oh, you need to listen. My brain was saying, you need to look like you're listening because that's the polite thing to do. But once I didn't have to look like I was listening, I could actually listen. That was a real point turning point for me i don't know if she ever knows how impactful that was for me so if alexis is listening to this thank you babe i appreciate it <laughs> that that is that's very cool that's a very good example actually pretending that you're listening and not listening because again there is no bandwidth left yeah and it, it's really not that i think that's the problem is people think that we're not listening and it's really not that we don't want to listen we do want to listen but society has told us that you have to look a certain way in order to listen if that makes sense. And it takes away from the actual listening. <laughs> and for for example, for ADHD, the closest example I can give you is sometimes for me to be able to really listen to a conversation and a meeting, I need to doodle. Yeah, doodling's a big one. Mm-hmm. And then people may say, oh, you know, like you're not listening, you're drifting off. Actually, this is the way I'm listening. So I mean, this th- is the right way now I'm, I'm, I'm doing it right now. Hmm. I'm playing with this little so for, um, for those are fidget toy. Uh, who are j- fidget toy, yeah. Yeah. For those, yeah, for those of you who can't see, I'm playing with a little fidget toy right now so that I can actually connect with Arash and like listen to him without having to think about it too hard. <laughs> that is cool. Do, okay, let me ask you a question. Of course. What do you think can be done? What kind of raising awareness or shift in the culture? shift the mindset so we can demand less from neurodiverse individuals to act as neurotypical so that's the thing isn't it is that the reason we're masking is because society has said this is how you must behave and the only way to break that is to normalize it so for me i think we can all kind of play our part if we feel comfortable doing so for me I've just tried to, where I feel safe, tried to do the things that help me to listen. So for instance, I, I, a prime example of this is 
in the spring of this year, I was at a big astronomy conference called the American Astronomical Society. They hold two conferences a year and the big one is in spring or winter, they call it. It's in January. And I took one of my fidget toys with me and I took it into every single talk that I attended so that I could actually listen to the talks because anyone who's been to a big conference knows like they are very, very overstimulating. There's a lot of people. There's an expectation on you to behave a certain way. You're there to network. You're there to sell your science. You're there to, you know, do all these things at once. And I always find myself not really able to do the one thing I want to do there, which is take Mm -hmm. in the science. So I decided to just say, screw it. I'm going to do what I need to do to take in this science. So every talk I went to, I took my fidget toy and I sat there and I played with it. And at the beginning of the week, I noticed people looking at me like, is that woman playing with a child's toy? Because, you know, I'm a 32-year-old woman sitting there in my suit, like with my fancy hair and my bag and whatever, playing with this tiny pink plastic toy. I realized that the more I ignored that, the less it started happening. And then throughout the week, people started seeing me more one woman came up to me and said oh i wish i had one of those right now i was like go get one you can get them at the grocery store like just you know because they're they're kind of popular for children right now so you can kind of buy them everywhere so i said you know just go to the grocery store and buy one who cares and i think it's i i don't like putting the onus on the neurodiverse community because we already have enough to do but if you feel comfortable and if you feel able just making it making it clear that you will do what you need to do to thrive. And if that looks a bit weird, then screw it. Like, Mm -hmm. who cares what other people think? And I know that's not easy for everyone. And it's something that took me a while. But now I just now I just wear it as a superpower. I wear it as an honor now to have this different frame of mind. And hopefully, eventually, people will just be like, oh, that woman has a fidget toy. Sure. You know, it won't Same be way weird. that another person may have a pen. Yeah, a clicky pen or whatever there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as long as you're not, you know, disturbing those around you, yes. who cares? You know, I'm not there cl- clicking a pen, right? That I could be doing yeah, yeah. that and that would be way more distracting. <laughs> like this is, this can be loud if I pop it a bit too much, but it's not, you know, it can be done quietly. So that's my kind of a- approach. <laughs> so... I want to ask a question about like your experience in conferences also. Mm, I think I can also benefit from uh, any insight you may have. I've also experienced that I get overwhelmed quickly by the number of people around me and the fact that I have to be constantly alert and have it, have this smiley face on Mm -hmm. and like be ready to have a conversation, smart conversation that also genuine is genuine sounding and like leads to some, exchange of i don't know information at the end for someone with autism can you give us some insight into that how person with autism may feel in kind of these conferences of like 1000 2000 people yeah so i attend a lot of conferences and i actually really enjoy them but i've that's through a process that i've now got down to a, a fine you know, <laughs> I have a, I have a process now that is I, I mm-hmm. is necessary. So, the first thing I would say to anyone who is attending a big conference and wants to kind of show up as their best self is prioritize your mental and physical health. When I go to a conference, I make sure I get enough sleep. I make sure mm-hmm. that I see people who bring me joy. I make sure that I take downtime, and I make sure that even though I've outlined the schedule to be crazy busy and to go to everything I want to go to, as long as I hit 
maybe one or two most important things a day. If I end up having to go and take a nap, that's fine. The second thing is tools. So fidget toys. Another thing I always take with me is my, I showed you these in the pre-chat, my earplugs. So Mm -hmm. I have some earplugs by a company called Loop. They're really, really good. They work by reducing basically background noise, but it's, it's, it's done to a decibel level. I can't, I don't really understand it, but it's essentially just an earplug. What's nice is they fit really snugly in your ear. You wouldn't actually know anyone was really wearing them. And that really helps reduce background chatter and loud noises. So, you know, sometimes at conferences you get a door slamming and you get, you know, if someone doesn't hook up the mic properly and there's feedback, these are all things mm-hmm. that can really send me into meltdown. And that greatly reduces the risk of that happening. So I'll put in my loop headphones before I even, le- even leave the hotel and I won't take them out until I get back. It's that's a game changer. So that's another tool. And then all the regular tools that you should suggest, like always being hydrated and making sure you've got snacks on you and all those other things that kind of can improve your physical and mental well-being for anyone at a conference, really. Right. And that's what I think is when we're talking about tools, what I think is really interesting is a lot of the things I'm suggesting are actually really good for neurotypical folk as well, because we all get... That's very true. You know, like it it goes back to that old mantra of a a rising tide lifts all boats. You know, I think everyone could benefit from these kinds of looking after yourself in these ways. So those are some tools. So the first thing, yep, looking after yourself. The second thing, you know, utilizing tools. And the third thing, just being really honest with people. Mm. I I used to get scared of saying to people, I think, oh, if I tell them I'm autistic, are they going to want to network with me? But actually I found that the majority of times people are either really interested because meeting academic or, or, you know, I'm not going to say successful. I don't think I'm at that level yet, but, uh, you know, a working towards success, you know, Mm -hmm. young ish (laughs) woman who is openly autistic is not normal. So people have questions and I'm happy to answer those questions. And so I've actually found it kind of can improve my networking. And it also gives me the opportunity for when I am feeling it like it's just too much, I can get out my card and I can say, hey, I really want to continue this conversation, but I'm not going to be my best self right now. Can we Zoom? Can we have a chat after the conference? Can we get a drink tomorrow? Something like that. And generally, I find that works. People, I mean, everyone's tired. And if they really care about your conversation and, and what you guys are talking about, they'll want to follow up with you anyway. So I'll just give them my card. And, and it's also a benefit because sometimes you do get not very nice people who say things like, well, you don't look autistic or, you know, well, you just have to deal with it. And you know what? I don't really want to network with those people. Mm. I don't want to work with those people. So it gives you an insight into what those people are really like. Look after yourself, use tools. Don't be afraid to be honest. Those are my takeaways. Those are very important. And what you said at the end, I think is, is very, very important that we are so about pleasing everyone. Mm hmm. Some people you don't want to really please. I mean, like when you think about that, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, like maybe 85%, 80% of society, you want to focus on that. 20%, let them be. Yeah. Not that they are good or bad people. No, we're just different. Yeah, exactly. The same way that you're not going to change minds of the people who are the complete opposite end of the political spectrum. Right. And maybe I don't want to be very good friends with those people because our values don't align. And that's fine. They can go do their thing. Um, and I'll yeah, try not to be upset our about head it. <laughs> against a wall that, like, oh, I have to actually, that is what I have to do or focus or change their mind. I exactly. mean, like, I think it's just going to be a frustrating 
unproductive process, honestly. Exactly. It's, uh, it's not good for anyone. No one, no one enjoys it. So why? Why bother? Yeah. That's true. That was good. A lot of insight. I, 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 I learned a few things that I'm gonna next time I'm gonna go to a conference. Stuff. Having a bottle of water with me is is very important. I found myself like not drinking the whole day. Yeah, just because definitely because you don't think session. about it. You don't think about it. Another thing I do, actually, this this I do absolutely every day of my life, but can be good at conferences. One of my issues is I I get hyper focused and I forget to eat. So mm. I have on my Apple Watch, I have three timers set: one for breakfast, one for lunch, and one for dinner, so that I remind myself to eat. And you can do the same thing with like water, right? Like every I I make a rule to myself that if I'm getting up to leave a session, I take some water. I, I have some water. So I just make that a habit. Every time I get up, I drink some water. And that way I stay hydrated. Because you're right, it's so quick. It's so quick to go through your whole day and yeah. be like, oh, I haven't drunk any water. Like, no wonder I'm a mess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very good advices. So I want to go back to your, you covered the college experience. Mm. And then for university, you came to US or you did your undergraduate in UK? Well, that kind of, I, I kind of took a tangent. So after college, I decided that I wanted to be a world famous singer. I decided that that was my, that was my driving force. So I went to music school, nice. <laughs> much to the kind of confusion maybe of my mom and friends, because <laughs> it hadn't been, I was always very into music. I'd go to music festivals and things like that, but I think they were like, what? <laughs> so I went to music school and this was about the same time that my autism, uh, my autism, my anxiety, my depression got really bad because I really hadn't been learning about what my body needed and learning about what my brain needed as I grew. And I just started getting worse and worse. So after a few years in music school, it's kind of crazy, actually. I suddenly lost most of my voice. So one day I woke up and every note above, I think it was like an E2, had just gone like I could, I, I could make the voice noise, make the mouth mm. shapes and push the air out, but nothing would come. I went to doctors, I went to ear, nose and throat people, I went to therapists, I, nothing, nothing would bring it back. And I thought, oh, well, I'm going to have to, like, this is, if my voice is my money and I can't sing, then I need to do something else. So at the time, and this is a story I love because I, I think it really like harnesses the power of friendship my best I was living with my best friend Kat and still my best friend to this day love her to bits she was actually at law school at the same time in the same town that I was in and I had decided pretty much overnight I'm gonna go and do a degree because in England you you don't get a free degree but the uh mm -hmm. the student finance system is such that you basically get one for free. You do have to pay it back, but in incredibly small increments and it gets canceled at some point. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a broken system as much as it is here, but whatever. So I thought, well, I'm gonna go and do that because then, you know, best case scenario, my voice comes back and I have a degree under my belt. Worst case scenario, I'll go and do whatever it is that this degree is in. So then I thought, okay, what do I do my degree in? And Kat had said to me, well, you did really well at law in college. Why don't you go do law? And I said, oh, no, I don't wanna do law. It just doesn't interest me. And I knew that whatever it was I was going to do, I had to be really interested because at this point I had learned that if I'm not really into something and we can get about, we can talk about special interests if you want. I have a yeah. few of those. But um, if I wasn't really interested in something, it wasn't going to happen. I, I kind of knew in my heart, but didn't really, couldn't really put a finger on why 
it was astrophysics. I remember Kat saying to me, Jess, astrophysics is incredibly difficult. You don't have the prerequisites. You'll have to go back to college before university, that that stage I spoke about, and redo some courses. It's going to be a long Mm -hmm. road. It's going to be expensive. It's probably going to be very hard. Is that really what you want to do? And I said to her resoundingly, yes. And she, because she is so smart and amazing, made me talk through with her all the other courses that were on offer at our local university. And instead of tell her why I wanted to do astrophysics, I had to tell her why I didn't want to do all the others. Mm -hmm. And it was such a useful task because the days now that I feel like, oh, why did I do this? Because it's hard. I can look back to that moment and remember because it wasn't going to be anthropology. It wasn't going to be history. It wasn't going to be computer science or engineering or any of those because I went through with her on that day. This is why not this. This is why not this. This is why not this. So anyway, thanks, Kat. I went back to college and I got my prereqs in math and physics. I then went to the University of Hertfordshire, which is in the UK and great astronomy program. They had a program wherein so in the UK it takes three years to do your undergraduate degree but to kind of maybe to bring it in line with the US system what they do is you can take your third year and do it abroad or you can go and work in industry something like that and then you come back and complete your final year so it turns into like a four-year degree and so I went to talk to the people at the career center or whatever and the astronomy people And I said, well, I want to be an astrophysicist. No other option. I don't want to go into industry. I don't want to work for, you know, some big company doing physics things. And they were like, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to do academia. And they said, okay, well, will it, what, what would be your dream? And I said, well, I want to go to Hawaii and I want to use the big telescopes on Mauna Kea because I'd read all about them and they're the best in the world. And they kind of went, oh, that's, that's a lot of effort on our part to get you out there. And, and I pushed and I pushed and I pushed and I cried and I pushed. One day, one of the, the people who worked at, in the astronomy department had got wind of me wanting to go on my, my year abroad to Hawaii and said, oh, I used to work at one of the telescopes out there. Let me see if I can find you a connection. Antonio Christotomo, who was amazing again, and managed to get me a connection at the Institute for Astronomy in Hilo, Hawaii, which is on the big island to do an internship. So that's how I got to Hawaii. I flew out. I started working with an astronomer here called Christoph Baranek, who does, he builds this incredible instrument called RoboAO, which basically surveys stars incredibly quickly for, for lack of being able to go into this in detail. And I started working with him and I loved it. And four months into this process, I met my soon-to-be husband. <laughs> And we sat down and I said, look, you know, I'm gonna have to go back to England uh, to finish my degree. And he said, I really don't want you to do that. And I was like, well, I guess I stay here then. So we got married (laughs) and that was eight years ago. So anyone who tells you that love at first sight and getting married within months of knowing each other isn't gonna work, it somehow has worked for us. So it's not impossible. And I finished my degree remotely and this was before COVID or anything. So, you know, props to my university for allowing that. And then I did my master's at the IFA in Hawaii. And then I left the IFA to pursue my PhD with Kay Van Stassen at Vanderbilt University, which is where I am today. But I still work remotely. I live in Volcano on the big island of Hawaii. So yeah, that's, that's kind of the, that, that's how you get up to this point. 
Um, so I'm sure there's many questions now because <laughs> that is, <laughs> oh I know God. that's not a straight path, but I wanted to get it out. <laughs> and I also didn't expect it to be this nonlinear. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's, I know it's quite a story. <laughs> <laughs> Looping over itself. So. And uh, oh, actually, what might interest you is that I did eventually get a diagnosis for why my voice had gone. It's called psychogenic voice disorder. And it's linked to essentially, well, I've now realized it's linked to my neurodiversity. And since working with a voice coach, I've got my voice back. Hmm. But now I'm so enamored with astronomy that I guess I'm stuck doing this. <laughs> <laughs> it seems you're having fun. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I love my job. Wake up every day enjoying it. Seriously. So you're experiencing grad school. I, I know your advisor and I'm, I, I want to actually go back to it. And I want you to also tell us about what he's doing yeah, in addition absolutely. to astrophysics. So how was your experience in grad school in US? Right. Anything that stands out to you, particularly related to your experience as a person with autism. Mm -hmm. And I want you to think about both uh, challenges and also strengths. I actually have a, I think I can talk well to this because I've been to two grad schools, as you may have picked up from my conversation there, as I did my master's at UH, University of Hawaii, and I left. And it wasn't under good circumstances. And I now realize that that is, was because I was undiagnosed. And I ended up with Kayvan at Vanderbilt and it completely turned my life around. It completely turned around my experience of astronomy, my experience of grad school. Grad school is hard. This is no shade to UH. A lot of grad schools have a lot of problems, especially in the STEM areas, and especially when dealing with a diversity of minds, i.e. people who are neurodiverse or women or yeah. people of color or people in the LGBTQ communities, things like that. So I, I'm not going to sit here and bash my old grad school, but there's definitely a spectrum of experiences. I can definitely talk about what about Vanderbilt changed me. And for the most yeah. part, it was Kayvon. So I had left my old grad school unsure whether I would actually be able to get my PhD. So I had my master's at this point. I had been connected through Kayvon like, like it is in, uh, I mean, I don't know how it is in the other STEM fields, but astronomy is a very small shop. So you, you find yourself meeting random people for random reasons. What had happened was I had taken the year out to kind of figure out what I was going to do. And luckily, I live in Hawaii. So there's a lot of telescopes, a lot of opportunities. And I was working with a colleague at another telescope. And he had a postdoc working for him called Rob, lovely guy. I had kind of been having this chat with Rob about like, oh, what do I do? Have you got any ideas? Do you know any grad schools who are, you know, in this area looking at what I look at, blah, blah, blah. And he went, I think you'd really get on well with my old advisor, Kayvon Stassen. So I was like, sure, connect me. So he connected me and we kind of chatted on and off for a while. And then eventually I said to him, look, I, I wanna pursue my PhD, can I come to Vanderbilt? And he said, yeah, I think you'd, you'd fit really well into our group. And I said, well, I, I wanna work remotely. He's like, that's no problem with me as long as you get the work done. And you seem to work really well remotely. And I'd had a lot of practice at this point because of finishing my undergrad. Yeah. So I said, okay, so I started with him. And this is actually exactly the time that I came into my neurodiversity. So I had been talking to my therapist for many years about the idea that I might be neurodiverse. And about, I'd say about two or three months before I met Kayvon, I had come across this article, which is now a very, not an academic article, but a, a, a journalistic article. I think it was in the New York Times. And it's actually become a very 
popular article for exactly this now, which talked about a woman who was diagnosed in her late 20s with autism. And it's her, it was her perspective. And I can't remember her name, mm-hmm. but um, I can dig it up if you want to put it in the show notes or anything. And as I read this article, I can't even remember why I clicked on it. It had come up somewhere on my feed, on some Twitter maybe. And it said, I was diagnosed with autism at 20 something and it changed my life. And I read the article and as I was reading through this woman's experiences of her childhood and things like that, I was I was just like, oh my God, tick, tick, tick. Like this is a mm. mirror image of what I went through. So I brought it up with my therapist who doesn't specialize in, in neurodiversity. She specialized in anxiety, depression, which is why I was with her. And she was like, hmm, well, you know, you do relate a lot to these symptoms, but you have a lot of good social aspects that you wouldn't often key in as autistic. And I was like, but maybe it's this masking thing. And we kind mm. of worked together and eventually she kind of soft diagnosed me as, as having, as being autistic. I had kind of just, I kind of sat with that for a while. You know, I thought, okay, I'm autistic. I, I kind of, have, I spoke to a few people. I'd kind of got some insight and realized that this was an identity I fit into. I didn't really need any anyone else to tell me it was true. I ticked all the boxes, like literally mm-hmm. every single box. Like, you know, on those quizzes they give you and you have to answer all the questions. I, I t- like 200 out of 200. I am tick, tick, tick. Yeah. Walked around on my it tiptoes as a child. Me. Yeah. Like I walked around on my tiptoes as a child because I never liked touching the floor. I often run baths that are so hot. They'll like scold me, but I don't realize they're hot. Like, you know, all the really random things. Like I love watching water and all the weird ones that you don't often think of. I hate textures on my food, can't have like any sauces on my food, like all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. I didn't really think much about it. And then one day Kayvan messaged me and I didn't know he was working. He was the director of the Frist Center. Um, I just thought he was an astronomy advisor, right? Like I didn't really know much about him. And he said to me, oh, I'm just, you know, trying to figure out kind of um, what grant I'm going to pay you off or whatever, right? Like he was just trying to figure out the logistics of how I fit into his group. Yeah. And I want to ask you a question. Feel free to ignore this email if you if you're offended by it or anything. But are you neurodiverse? And I literally burst into tears. I remember calling my husband into the office. I'm like welling up thinking about it. Like I called my husband into the office and I was like, I don't know whether Kayvan has noticed this through our Zoom. Like because he obviously works with a lot of people my age who are autistic and he's he knows this really, really well. And I was like, I'm not sure whether he genuinely is just asking or whether he has actually seen something in me. But he's nailed it. I'm neurodiverse. That's exactly what I am. And I just burst into tears. And I called my mom and I was like, am I neurodiverse? And she was like, oh, yeah. Like, she didn't even second guess it. She was like, yep, doesn't surprise me at all. You know, and like <laughs> my friends were all like, yep, totally. My therapist was like, yep. To-. And I was like, oh, wow. So I said to Kayvon, yeah, I am. And he was like, OK, well, we can support you in that. You can come and, you know, help us at the Frist Center, uh, which is how I kind of fell into that work. And from there, it's basically just been this incredible experience of learning about myself whilst doing my PhD. Every day I feel like more like myself. Every day I'm growing, every day I feel better. Uh, My anxiety and depression are like almost completely gone. And I've harnessed like all the good things about autism and I avoid all the bad things, hopefully. Mm -hmm. And it's really changed my life honestly. So those are my good grad school experiences. And I'm, I'm happy to talk about the bad so ones. Before, before <laughs> we move to the next, because there are so many interesting things in there. I want to ask you about, you, you said like your diagnosis helped you. Yes. How? I think it was being able to put a name to mm. the quirks that I experienced. I was no longer just weird. 
you know. And what it allowed me to do was to start reading. So I'm a researcher by nature, right? Like I love numbers. I love, well, I love numbers, but I also love reading. I'm an avid reader and I'm a very data driven. I will, you know, if I, if someone tells me something, I'm like, where are the facts? Where are the statistics? Where is the data? You know? And so once I had received this diagnosis, I was like, okay, I need to learn about it. You know, I need to learn about what this means for me. And at first I went through the things that I found hard and I figured out how to deal with them. And the more I started reading, the more I realized that, you know, we come and we spoke about this in the pre-chat, we come at autism often from a disability narrative, from a deficit-based perspective. But I started reading with help from the Frist Center about the strengths-based perspective and started realizing that a lot of the things that I thought were normal that made me very good at what I do are actually benefits of my neurodiversity. And the one I often cite is my hyper-focus. I have the ability to sit down and work for six, seven, eight hours straight without getting distracted and without being sad or bored or over it. Like I actually enjoy it. It stimulates me if I'm doing something I love. That's in this superpower. Yeah, it's a superpower. And I just thought it was normal. I thought everyone did that, especially when you're in grad school and you're surrounded by people working hard. You don't really think that that's weird, right? But actually, I, after speaking to my friends who aren't autistic, I realized that that's a real struggle for them to focus for that long. And, and that's probably, I, I can name many superpowers, but that's one example. And it's, you know, that, so learning about the positives is something that I wouldn't have bothered to read about or bothered to learn about if I wasn't autistic because it wouldn't have mattered. So that was really the benefit for me. It's just being able just to harness it. It is so interesting. I'm listening to you and I feel this positive energy in my body. And let me tell you why. Although we are coming to this from total to, two totally different kind of like experiences, me with ADHD diagnosis, you with autism diagnosis. It, it is amazing how similar the experiences were after mm. being diagnosed. I did exactly the same thing. I started learning about myself. And one thing that I happened to me automatically was stopping that self-blame. Yes. Yes, I resonate with that so much, especially in... um around productivity did you mm -hmm. feel the, the same kind of thing more for me more was just like conflicting things for example like being able to solve math and physics problem at no time and struggling so much on like topics related to reading writing for example mm -hmm. just like mm -hmm. those conflicting ideas unresolved conflicting understandings of self yeah at like same, why at, am i at, good at this but not at that you know why yeah, can i or, yeah or why i can focus on this and not on uh, not on the other one and and you you look at others that they can be assigned a task and get it done and they don't really care about the nature of that for me i mean like if the task is not stimulating yeah forget about that i procrastinate to death and yes yes me too <laughs> yeah so it, it, it's so interesting and you know where i'm going with this is although the diagnosis does not mean that oh you need there needs to be a medical intervention follow-up just awareness around that and particularly mm -hmm. so, like if it happens at, at an age that you can learn on your own, read your, uh, read 
the information that is out there, good ones. I mean, not not necessarily what necessarily what medical fields uh, is is saying. There are a lot of good self help books at out there. Mm. I think this is this diagnosis for that reason can be very helpful. Not that oh they're gonna start giving you medication and medication is gonna help, or they're gonna start a therapy or whatever. I mean, or some intervention that that is gonna help. That self awareness I think is very yeah. critical. Absolutely. I agree that, I mean, and there are obviously autism as a spectrum and there are medical interventions which are good. And there are mental, medical interventions which are maybe have, well, good intentions, but aren't what actually doing what they're supposed to do. And there's, I think with autism, you don't, you, there's that famous quote, and I, I think it's Stephen Shaw who says, if you've met an autistic individual, you have met one autistic individual. We are all different. And some things that help me do not help my other autistic friends. And some things that help them drive me mad, which is why we can't approach it as a one-size-fits-all perspective. And I really like what you said. I really like kind of a holistic approach generally in life. Like I think we should go into medical issues with a holistic approach. You know, it's no good throwing a drug at something if you're also not eating a good diet and yeah. exercising regularly and getting enough sleep, you know? Like there's definitely... We're in, we live in this dichotomy of you have to do either Western medicine or Eastern medicine or, or you're a hippie or you're whatever. And I, I really, I think every, all of these have good, you know, practices. And if it works for you and if it's safe, then yes. do it. I know that, that that upsets the medical establishment sometimes. And I, and no shade to doctors. I think doctors do an incredible job and, yeah. you know, have helped me in a lot of ways with a lot of other issues. Cause as someone with autism, I do suffer from some chronic pain issues, which can, you know, be linked. We we're more often likely to have sensitivity issues or issues with uh, gut or issues with uh, intolerances, things like that. And those things have been massively helped for me by Western medicine. But when it comes to this, I don't, I don't know if I, if I need intervention, I, I do go to therapy and I'm working on my, you know, what we call formal diagnosis now. And maybe we can talk about medication with doctors if I need it for my executive functioning. But right now I think I'm okay. Yeah. And I'll make that decision yeah. if and when I have to make it, you know, with the help of my doctors and a good understanding. And it, and it is very situational again, mm -hmm. like even for ADHD, I have had experiences that they are anxiety producing and mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. there is no way to go through them without medication mm -hmm, and there mm -hmm. are experiences that like i'm just having a normal life because i'm i love what i'm doing for example like this podcast i have no problem with attention sustainable mm -hmm. because it's just like a very stimulating conversation i don't need medication for that it's just fun enough by itself so there was one more thing i wanted to go back to before we moved to the first center uh, and cave on which is you said like when you moved to Vanderbilt, you started working with K1. You've, I, I, I don't know if you said that sense of belonging, but I, I, I interpreted what you said. That yeah. kind of you yeah, had. yeah, yeah. So I didn't, I didn't say that explicitly, but yes, definitely. So, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I, I think, and this, I don't think this again. A rising tide lifts all boats. I don't think this is specific to neurodiversity. I think this is a grad school issue. Is that all in all? The grad students are the ones who do the brunt of the work, you know, when it comes to research, because the PIs are busy writing grants and dealing with money and dealing with all those boring things. And I think a problem, it was definitely a problem for me, is that I'm very bad at doing a good job if I don't feel valued. Like mm -hmm. if I don't feel like someone is 
great, not grateful necessarily, but like who appreciates the work I'm doing. And where I was before, I didn't feel like I was appreciated. I felt like if I achieved something, it was like, okay. or seen. Oh, both. But I think those are different camps, aren't they? Like appreciated in the sense that of my, just my output. I did a lot of output and I felt like I would do some output and then it would be like, okay, next thing. It wasn't like good job on this output. Um, Mm -hmm. And seen in the sense that there's more than one way there's more than one way to skin a cat as my mom would say which is not a horrible phrase but like (laughs) there's more than one way to go about something and having a diversity of minds much like having a diversity in in any other sense is a benefit and i think a lot of all the the kind of old school academy isn't built for people outside of a very specific process right a very specific you you have to look sound act behave or think a certain way consistent with this very old institution of how we should gain and disseminate knowledge. And this speaks a bit to like, even like we we talk a lot now about indigenous cultures and ways of knowing and how indigenous science mm-hmm. is science. And I come across this a lot in Hawaii because obviously the native Hawaiians are here. And there's a lot of conversations here about astronomy and, and native Hawaiians because of where we choose to build our telescopes, which is a whole other conversation. And there's not respect for that, you know? So it's about changing the academy, which I know is <laughs> that's a, mm-hmm. that's a, not something one person could do. It's a cultural shift. Yeah. So being seen, yeah, is a huge part of it. Not just as, as point, neurodiverse, but as a woman as well. At some point, they're going to start realizing because of, again, like because it's a very competitive field. Mm. They're going to start realizing if they narrow their approaches, it's going to hurt them. And that's when they're going to... I mean, for example, now... Everyone knows that like the best strategy when you invest is diversifying your portfolio. Yeah. So how about we diversify our problem solving approaches? I love that <laughs> so metaphor. Well, you're you're being very idealistic though. <laughs> I know. I, yeah. I think, you know, despite the fact that the evidence and the science is there, and often we think, okay, well, then the scientists should should look at this evidence and science and and see it for what it is. I think there's a there's an element of fear. People don't like change. And also some of the ideas about academia, which, you know, people think could strengthen it, for instance, abolishing tenure, are very scary, right, Mm -hmm. to people who who have that thing. Because like, and I get that, like, you know, that's, you know, that's a risk to them. It's very idealistic. And I agree with you. And I totally think we could burn it all down and build it again tomorrow. But that's unfortunately not what's going to not what's going to happen. Um, yeah. But hopefully, you're right. Hopefully, this will, over time, become better. Yeah, I mean, over time, they're going to see that they're going to paying a, they're paying a price. Mm. For example, if if a group, a research team, only is recruiting from certain population from certain groups, I mean, with certain skills, they're going to realize that they're falling behind. Essentially, the other people they are doing cool stuff, and, and they're more attractive. This new generation. They want to have fun in what they are doing. So those groups are, I suspect, again, talking to a lot of younger kids now, they want to work in a diverse group. So they will not be able to continue recruiting high quality students if they want to keep it like limited to certain type of kind of like, uh, I don't know, skill color or mindset or uh, cognitive style or things like that. So... Let's go to the first center and K1. Mm, so sure. K1 is a 
renowned astrophysicist, right? Uh, and, yeah, he is. And this year, I think he was selected on the National Science the, Board, <laughs> which is the board that advises yep. the President of the United States on extremely high level scientific efforts. And for example, like where we need to start investing to be competitive in 20 years, for example. So he's going to have his fingerprint on how the science in this country is going to evolve. So I'm, I'm, I'm so happy that the person like him is in that board. And I'm sure yeah. all the other board members uh, have qualifications like him. So that is about his qualification qualifications as uh, as an astrophysicist an amazing person he is and uh, i've had multiple interactions with him and I've, I've enjoyed every minute i've spent with him but i want you to maybe if you want to kind of add any information about him and then say what his second job is and what he is. yeah <laughs> i could talk about cave until the cows come home and uh, I get annoyed at my my other grad friends who say they have imposter syndrome. And I'm like, have you seen my boss? <laughs> like, although to say to all that to say that Kayvon has never done anything that should, you know, can make me concerned about my imposter syndrome. It's just he's so accomplished that it's hard to hard to believe I could ever match that. So, yeah, you're right. He was chosen to be on the National Science Board this year, selected by President Biden. And so you you explain that very eloquently, much better than I would have. He is a professor of astrophysics at Vanderbilt University in the physics and astronomy department. I also think he lectures in computer science <laughs> and he's got, you know, many faculty awards and things like that for those yeah. for those things. And he does a great job of it. But he is also the founder and director of the Frist Center for Autism and Innovation. So this I will not you know, it's not my job to tell his story personally, but my understanding is this mostly came about because his son was diagnosed autistic. I think the quote that always I always think of when people ask me uh, why I think Kayvon did this was he says that, you know, he wouldn't change his son for the world. So he's going to change the world for his son. And I know, oh, I, Kayvon, amazing person. So he set up this this center and I am the project coordinator for it now. So I do a lot of social media webinars, trying to get our message out to the public, working with partner organizations to essentially push our mission, which is, it's a, you know, for lack of a better phrase, helping the transition between being someone who is young and neurodiverse into the workforce, because there is a gap there. So very often in elementary school or in even in high school, there are quite good sets of accommodations for people who are autistic on the spectrum, etc. But we often forget that autistic children grow into autistic adults. And there aren't the same level of services or, or think you're kind of expected to just not grow out of it, but just get used to it and you'll be okay. Right. And that's obviously not how it works. And and uh, so we do a lot of work with partners like Mentra, which is a, a neurodiversity based uh, job seeking platform. So it's kind of like Indeed, but for people who are neurodiverse, mm -hmm. um, other other places like that. We also run um, summer internships for neurodiverse students. So, you know, the, the REU, the research experience for undergrads that's popular mm -hmm. amongst, uh, you know, U.S. universities. We run a neurodiversity specific one. So we do kind of higher education stuff and things like that. We also have a program called the Neurodiversity Inspired Science and Engineering Fellowship. So I'm a, I'm a fellow of that of that program. And it's grad students who are neurodiverse or who study neurodiversity. 
and we get a, a kind of graduate professional certificate alongside our PhD. So we attend particular classes about kind of designing for designing for neurodiversity, things like that, engineering for neurodiversity. And I really like the cohort because it's, it's about, I think it w- I would say it's about half neurodiverse, half studying neurodiverse. So you have neurodiversity PhD students and then you also have, so like I'm in astronomy and I'm neurodiverse. We have computer scientists who are neurodiverse. We have physics majors who are neurodiverse, things like that. Yeah, so that's that's a great program. We do a lot of partnership work as well. So a lot of kind of bringing people in for webinars to, to get their message out. And we work from purely a strengths-based paradigm. Mm. So, you know, the, the superpowers paradigm, as I call it, although that's not the medical term. How can we help neurodiverse people thrive in the workplace? Whether that's accommodations, whether that's uh, how to access They're job interviews, things like that. No, why would we? Why would we fix superheroes? <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> But supporting them, supporting them, of course, not ignoring it. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't go moving from a strengths-based perspective does not mean that you're ignoring the fact that it can be a struggle, of course. And that's very important because I've seen, and, and maybe, maybe actually we can talk about that a little bit because I've seen that confusion whenever you think, mm-hmm. uh, to, I've, I've been in uh, conversations that when I talk about this being, uh, or strength-based paradigm, some people, the immediate reaction is that, are you denying the challenges? And yeah. I have to take the time to explain, no, yeah. it's not no. about that. Challenges exist. Someone with ADHD, autism, they still have the struggles because of the environment, although it's because of the environment. Because yeah, it's the research. environment. Yeah. Society just wasn't built for us. That's it's as simple That's as true. that. So it's not about ignoring the challenges, you're right. And do you know what? There's enough people trying to tell us our challenges. We don't need to talk, you know, we don't need to like be, when people say, oh, well, you're ignoring the challenges. It's like, well, no one else's. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and you know, like, and, and my, my selling point at that point uh, in those conversations is like, okay, there has been focus, as you said, fo- there has been focus on challenges. I firmly believe that by empowering them, by reminding them of their strengths and encouraging them to utilize their strengths, we may overcome those challenges also. Yeah. So rather absolutely. than putting 100 percent of the focus on mitigating those challenges remediating remediating the challenges we can say okay challenges exist i know but for, it's for example someone who has problem i'm talk, speaking to my exper- own experience attention problem in a class or a boring you know setting if there is something there that makes me excited i mean like that is aligned with my strengths it 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 carries me through the experience yeah through the challenge right and you learn you learn how to cope with challenge which is if we if we try and just remove challenges and remove barriers you can't grow right like you grow through challenge you grow through barrier yeah i think that's a really good point absolutely so you've had i suspect many interactions with other autistic students Mm -hmm. or individuals right what do you think this idea of strength-based, again, like I know the answer, but as as someone who has interacted with many autistic individuals, do you think emphasizing on strengths would be a better approach or trying to come up with, I don't know, next gadget, next app, or and all focused on like, again, mitigating challenges? I mean, what, based on your experience interacting with them seeing how they light up when you talk about something or no 
I think it's a 50-50 split because mm. the the tools we use to mitigate challenge help us to explore our strengths. And mm. I know that I've come to a place in my own personal growth where I see my autism as a superpower now. And that does not mean that there aren't days when I can't I can't do life. <laughs> there are definitely days mm. when I can't do life, but they're less frequent now. If we know what our strengths are, we can support others by creating the tools that help us, if that makes sense. I know that everyone approaches this differently. Everyone approaches their diagnosis differently. Everyone comes to a different... I mean, I don't think there's ever an end point to your exploration of yourself. I think that's true of all humans, or at least should be true of all humans, um, who are willing to look inside and have a have a element of self-awareness. You know, I, th I think if you're, if you're not looking back at your 20-year-old self and going, oh my God, that was embarrassing, then you're probably not growing, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> or, oh, I screwed up there, or, oh, I, did, I, I need to learn from that situation. Uh, yeah, you're probably not doing the self-reflection that is necessary. And, uh, and that's just part of being innately human. That's not specific to, to being neurodiverse. It's just another element of it. But I definitely mm -hmm. see the strengths as my superpowers. And I learn more of them every day. Like every now and again, something will happen and I'll go, huh, that's cool. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Or, oh, so, that's something I need a tool for. Speaking of <laughs> your super, superpowers, you have, you have uh, talked about two of the hats that you're wearing. I, I, and I know that you have a podcast also i do i do tell us about that i will it's nowhere near as amazingly professional as yours is rash but hopefully <laughs> hopefully it'll get there so my I'm podcast is a lot of good help <laughs> um i host a podcast called astronomer and and we explore the diversity and intersectionality within the astronomy community but i think it it, it kind of um bleeds out into other stem disciplines although i haven't explored that yet so each episode or each couple of episodes i interview a new guest we we start by talking about their job so that could be they could be a research scientist or they could be an astronomer in another capacity and people some people get angry at the idea of using the word astronomer to describe anyone outside of tenured faculty but honestly mm -hmm. i think you know if you love the sky you're an astronomer you know <laughs> and so i've interviewed i've interviewed telescope operations specialists i've interviewed faculty i've interviewed directors of telescopes people who do education and outreach in the astronomy field people who are grad students but the the thing that binds us all is that we do not fit the traditional mold of an astronomer, which, for lack of a, a, a specific phrase, is usually a cis-het white man. Mm. So I've interviewed astronomers who are black. I've interviewed astronomers who are queer, non-binary. I've interviewed astronomers who are female or female presenting. I've interviewed astronomers who are religious, which is an intersectionality you don't often think to encounter in the hard sciences, especially in physics. And I've interviewed astronomers who don't have PhDs, which is like a shocker to people, you know. We start by, like I said, talking about what they do for the first half or part of the episode. So we, and, and my aim there is to show that this incredible science and this incredible work is being done by a diverse community. And then we move into talking about what their, their and is. So they're astronomer and black. What are their other identities? You know, they're astronomer and female, they're astronomer and neurodiverse. And we talk about both the benefits and the downsides to that and how we can improve astronomy and, you know, be allies in whatever that space is for our for our counterparts, you know, because I, you know, I understand as as a, a white woman, a Western white woman, that I have a level of privilege that my female counterparts of color do not have. So how can I help lift them up? How can I help elevate their voices? And so I hope that 
you know, I hope that the audience spans people who are, you know, want to feel seen and want to know that there are others like them because it is, it can be very lone, lonely to be the mm-hmm. only one. I've definitely been the only woman in, in male research groups before and it's hard. I'm definitely the only neurodiverse in research groups as well. Uh, immigrant is another one. You know, I've, I've interviewed immigrants because that's a whole different kettle of fish, especially if yes. you're a grad student. And how, you know, we, we talk about kind of what, what we can do. So I also hope, I hope that there are people listening who listen for the science and then continue to listen and maybe think a bit harder about how we select grad students, how we treat grad students, how we treat our faculty, how we come together as a community, how we teach how we educate the new generation and how it's our responsibility to do so, which I think is often left out of the picture. So yeah, yeah that's what that's, that's what the podcast is about. Good. Uh, it's it's very valuable what you're Thank doing. You. I I can see how critical it is. We talk about this uh, broadening participation in STEM, and when we talk about it, it, it it's just an abstract thing that we say making sure that their voices are heard in a kind of like an in an intimate conversation so people yeah. can get to know them better for who they are not as people reading an article that's people they're humans. yeah 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 absolutely right it's it's, it's it's good luck to you i wish i was an astronaut astrophysicist so i could Come hope on the that you invite me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I might, you know, if it gets enough interest, I might branch out into like scientist and, <laughs> and then I'll have you on the podcast. Um, one thing that actually that just reminded me of that you might find interesting. I, I at AAS this year at this big astronomy conference, there was a keynote address that a friend of mine was tweeting about because it was excellent. The, the woman giving the address said that in astronomy, we, we often use the phrase losing talent, which refers to when we, you know, lose people in these diverse molds because of issues within the within the ac- academy, right? With the kind of toxic cultures that can, that mm-hmm. can per- purvey. The quote that I just adore, and I wish I could cite, but I, it might have been Jane Rigby, I can't remember, but I can look it up, was losing talent is a really, losing talent is a funny way of saying destroying careers. And that's so true. And it really resonated with me, the idea that, you know, we, we call it, oh, we've lost talent, but actually it's, it's, it's people's lives. People don't go That's into true. astronomy for the money, trust me. <laughs> when you have a physics degree, there are very better paying options out there than the academics. Or killing right? hope and passion. Exactly. And why would we do that? Why? Why, don't, why wouldn't we make it accessible and available for everybody? And that's something that, you know, going back, circling back to the Frist Center, that's something that we're trying to do. You know, we, everyone who comes to the Frist Center has a passion for something. Trust me, autistic people, every autistic person has a real unique passion for something. And speaking to special interests. And um, mm-hmm. why, wouldn't we, why wouldn't we help those people thrive? Right. Yeah, there are some people that they are gatekeepers of mm-hmm. some, it's just like so interesting when i think about that that a field is defined this way and it should remain pure Mm -hmm. okay imagine if a non-traditional or post-traditional person may not become a university professor or publish or discover something but that person is going to be happy a happy person is going to do happy things in the world so it's going to spread happiness and also just from a from a perspective of universities and output be more productive. Like at my previous grad school, I was pushed incredibly hard and I was unhappy and my productivity wasn't good. And now I have an advisor who doesn't push me. 
He lets me do essentially what I want as long as it's within the boundaries. And he supports my scientific endeavors. And I'm more productive than I've ever been mm-hmm. because I'm happy. Like I wake up and I think, yes, I get to do science. I don't wake up thinking, oh God, I have to interact with this person or I have to go into this office where I don't feel safe or I have to, mm-hmm. you know, do this thing that I don't think is appropriate or feel comfortable doing. I just get to do science and that's what I want to do. And I love doing it. And if I want to do it at one in the morning, I can do that. And I'm not going to be made to do something at 9am or whatever, right? Like I just don't have those same boundaries. And that is, that's all I needed. That's really all I needed to thrive was just to be given some freedom, you know? So freedom, some impact, encouragement. Yeah. Safety. Yeah, for sure. You know, just guy. I knew it's going to be an amazing conversation, but it exceeded my expectations, honestly. Oh, thank you, Rush. Um, so That's so kind. It, it's, it's, it was amazing. I really enjoyed it, and I'm sure that our listeners will enjoy it. So, cognizant of the time, so if we start wrapping up, I typically ask my uh, guests to answer two questions, and uh, we wrap up with that. One is, what would be their advice to their... 13, 12 year old self, if they Um, look back. Don't be so hard on yourself. Mm. Love yourself. Don't hate yourself. You know, like you are a unique and wonderful individual and you don't need to worry about what other people think. And you can do anything you want if you put your mind to it. Would probably be my Mm. advice, which is actually quite sad now I think about it. And if you want to, you know, if you want to spend most of your day reading about Middle Earth and learning how to speak Elvish, don't think that's weird. Just do it. You know, you don't have to go to the party if you don't want to. Right. Great. How about a 20 year old self in college or university? Don't be too hard on yourself. (laughs) You don't have to go to the party if you don't want to. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Be mindful always be mindful life is so short and you have an impact so be mindful of how you spend your time be mindful of who you spend your time with surround yourself with people who nourish you surround yourself with people who share your values and who push you to strive and be the best version of yourself that would be my advice to myself at 20 that's great that's great thank you very much for sharing your wisdom with us and your time also I, I really thank you. And we're going to include a couple of links to the First Center, to Absolutely. your podcast in the show notes. And is there anything that you want to add before we wrap up? Uh, I mean, if people want to follow my social media, which is mostly just it's kind of oscillates between sporadic thoughts about politics and my day-to-day activities, it is, <laughs> it is Jess Stella, which is J-E-S-S-T-E-L-L-A on Instagram, Twitter. You can find me on LinkedIn under my name. I don't usually use LinkedIn, but I mean told I have to. So uh, you Mm -hmm. might see me more active there. I will soon be launching a nonprofit. I don't have links to give you at this time, but I can. We will be advocating, supporting and providing resources for people, including neurodiverse people who use medical assistance dogs. So uh, therapy dogs, service dogs, emotional support dogs, providing advocacy and support for them with the hope to eventually be able to to, to train and provide those dogs for people Not at low that cost. Not that you didn't have enough to do. 
Thank you, Arash. Well, <laughs> hyper-focus, right? I can get it done. It's my hobby now. I love dogs. Yes, so I, if yeah. I get to hang out with dogs, that's great. My website is jessicastasic.com. It's, it's partially utilized and can sometimes be useful. There's some cool astronomy on there. And there's links to some of the outreach things that we do in Hawaii, like uh, Mauna Kea Scholars, which is a great program where we take public school students to observe with some of the biggest telescopes in the world. So I do a lot of stuff like that. So if anyone's interested in that, you can find that on my website. Thank you very much. 